Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. Back in 2020, when Lori Kilmartin was still writing for Conan, her mom got COVID during her stay at a skilled nursing facility. There was only so much Lori could do from afar to help her mother in those final days. So, as she shared with her boss on an episode of his late night show that fall, she started tweeting jokes. Do you mind sharing a couple of the tweets with us? Um. Yeah, okay. Uh, here's here's a few. Uh, my sister and I are both heartbroken that mom's last words to us were complaints about the nursing home and not about our appearance. <laughs> um, so I just left a one-star Yelp review of the skilled nursing facility where my mom caught COVID-19. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hope, that, hope. that seems like a well-deserved one-star. <laughs> yeah. I was just notified that since my mom is a Trump supporter who died from COVID, her death has been ruled a suicide. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) It's that super dark sense of humor that is so brilliantly on display in Lori's new stand-up special, Sis Woke Grief Slut, in which she shares even more jokes about watching her Trump-loving mother die of COVID through an iPad screen. There are also very funny bits about raising a teenage son, the experience of getting death threats from Fox News viewers after making an abortion joke on MSNBC, and so much more. Before we get into our conversation, in which Lori looks back in terror at her first writing gig on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn and the pure joy of her 10 years writing for Conan, let's listen to a clip from the special about men who suddenly become feminists after having a daughter. My favorite men are guys who were like douchebags in their 20s. You know, like real sexist, like treated women, you know, up on down the spectrum, not great. And then they get married and they have a daughter and they frantically try to pivot to feminism. I know a lot of these guys because I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah. I know a lot of them. I love to watch their feminism. It's the most basic feminism. It's just the epiphanies are like, right? (laughs) They'll be like, as the father of a daughter, I think rape should be illegal. (laughs) Yeah, dumb shit. It is illegal. Lori, thank you so much for being here. Um, I have to tell you, I absolutely loved your new special. Um, I just got a chance to see it. Um, Cis Woke Grief Slut, which uh, is a, it's a, it's a pretty provocative title. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm open to hate watches as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Was that part of the idea? Like maybe you'll get some, uh, some extra, you know, haters on board. Yeah. Um, Yes, I, I see what works in comedy now, and it's not that you like a comedian. <laughs> the only the only one comedians that trend on Twitter are trending because people hate them, and then people defending them, and it just becomes an argument. So, uh, yeah, please argue over me. Uh, yeah, I love and it. Th- those are the comedians that win all the awards now. Yeah, very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get your Emmy. Yeah, please. Oh, no, sorry, your Grammy, but yeah, Grammy, Golden Globe, whatever. So. Yeah, I thought it was just a really great special. And you sort of warn up top that it's going to be, it's going to get a little dark. And you do that by starting with a with a 9-11 joke. So can you talk about maybe to start how you decided to set the tone at the top of your new special? <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess what really that is prepping people for is jokes about my mom dying of COVID. Um, and uh, so I just, yeah, I just wanted to set the table early on. And then it doesn't get super dark immediately after that, you know, after that 9-11 joke, which is actually just a joke about me being an awful self-centered person, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot of my jokes actually. Um, but, but yeah, I, I did, I didn't want that to come out of the blue. And if people, you know, uh, eagerly said they wanted dark comedy as they often do when you put it that way, and then you go into it and they hold back, it's like, uh, I have you on tape. Uh, play, play back camera three. You guys did agree to this. So 
don't know. It's just a, I, I guess, a fun way to, to uh, you know, start turning the temperature up very slowly. Everyone, I guess, has one topic they don't want joked about. And I, I have one. I, I don't like 9-11 jokes. Um, to me, it's not, it's not funny to make fun of 9-11 because my soulmate died in the towers, possibly. <laughs> so many handsome men died that day. Just the firefighters alone, my God. I remember looking at all of their pictures in the New York Times, thinking, my God, I would have fucked all of these men. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the jokes about your mom, um, which is where the grief in the title of the special, you know, really comes from. Um, so that's it, and it's something that sort of brought you a lot of attention not too long ago in 2020 when you started uh, tweeting about your mom who died of COVID very early in the pandemic. I um, mean, some of those Twitter jokes kind of end up in the, in the special uh, years later here or versions of them. Um, I remember seeing you on on Conan as a guest, um, you know, went around when that happened and you were sort of reading some of the tweets out loud and talking about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, can you, can you sort of talk about the, the journey of that from, uh, from tweeting about it and experiencing it to then, you know, four years later, having it be part of your, your special on stage and sort of the process of adapting that material in that sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I, I wanted all of the tweets and jokes. I mean, they're jokes. I put them on Twitter, so they're tweets, but they're jokes. And uh, I wanted them all in one place, in one chunk collected, <laughs> instead of just randomly out there. Going from from a joke written on Twitter to having it work in a comedy club when, you know, checks are dropping, <laughs> that's the journey because you have to sort of get, you know, you have to, I guess, be charming enough to get people to trust you, you know, and, uh, and, and go with you on this and, and realize it's okay. If she's okay with it, it's her mom, then I can be okay with it. And also I, I kind of feel resentfully like, you know, this country has tried as much as possible to forget the pandemic happened. And I like to be uh, annoyingly reminding people it did. And it took <laughs> yeah. my mom. <laughs> and some of you people uh, out in the audience probably never masked. And you took maybe not my mom, but you helped take somebody else's mom. So if you think there's anger underneath comedy, maybe that's my anger underneath that chunk. It happened. It was real. My mom was a Trump supporter who died of COVID. So the coroner ruled her death a suicide. <laughs> yeah. Cause of death, her vote. Yeah. Um, she died before the vaccines. And of course, that genuinely does suck. I do wish my mom had lived long enough to turn down the vaccines <laughs> in an epic seven paragraph Facebook post entitled, I've done my own research. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that really some of the same ideas and same jokes are there because it is, it sort of undermines the uh, you know, um, tragedy plus time equals comedy equation. Cause you were doing it so soon after, and even sort of during while it was happening, you know, joking about it, which I think most people wouldn't be able to do, but, but you were, do you think now sort of like, do you think about why you were doing that at the time? Was it for you? Was it for other people? Do you, what do you think drove you to, to make jokes in real time about the situation? Comedians have a, you know, at some point you develop a separate part of your brain that it just takes the notebook out immediately when something happens, uh, even if it's bad to you or to your family. And so that I think most comics are like that. And uh, uh, I don't know. I just what I remember from back then was that everyone was still in this weird fate, like kind of dazed by what had happened so quickly to the whole world. Like we were all at home. There were dolphins in the Venice Canal. Like what? It was so strange. And, not, you know, my mom was the first person I knew who got, you know, got COVID. <laughs> um, I think a lot of us didn't know anyone. You know, we knew like Tom Hanks and Rita, Rita, you know, like we knew celebrities that got it, but we didn't know anyone personally. Um, it, for, at that time, it felt like it was that, that one cruise ship in Seattle <laughs> and that 
choral group that all got it. Like, and we were all just trying not to get it. And then, um, and then it, you know, when my mom went into a, a sniff, a skilled nursing facility to, uh, recuperate from a hospitalization, that's when it just went all across the entire, her floor, probably the whole building. So yeah, I think back then when I, I remember when reading about people dying from COVID, it was after they had died. Um, I, and I think maybe this was the first time people were reading as it was going down, you know, as someone had been hospitalized, as you were trying to talk to them to the iPad, trying to get to visit them, all that kind of stuff that was, um, so difficult in, in June of 2020. Um, part of the bit hinges on the fact that she was a, a Trump supporter. Is that, is that true? Is that something that you actually kind of, uh, dealt with, with her about, um, you know, when she was alive, the debating oh, yeah. politics? Well, I mean, whenever we got into politics, it was ugly. And so, you know, every once in a while I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I would be so furious. I'd be like, you're okay with this guy doing this. And, um, you know, it, it never moved anything forward and it just made it really ugly for us to be together. So we both tried to avoid it, but yeah, she was one of those lifelong Republicans, um, that just never, they, they, they cannot fathom voting for a Democrat, no matter, they don't, I, to me, I don't think they look a policy. They're just, I see the R and that's where I go. And, uh, so she was one of those and it was really that was really difficult to to live with, you know? Um, and I'm sure, you know, she would say the same about me. So another part of your special that I wanted to touch on is this uh, other viral moment that you had on uh, MSNBC, um, also talking politics. Um, this is uh, when the Supreme Court leak happened um, about the, the Dobbs decision. Um, so maybe you can sort of explain, explain what happened and, and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I was doing Amen show um, on Sunday night. It was just a zoom in, and uh, that that decision came down over Mother's Day and uh, weekend, and so it was a Sunday night. And I just made this dumb little abortion joke. I I would like to find out who the leaker is, so I could make sweet love to that person because that person is a <laughs> hero to me. And if I get pregnant during our lovemaking, I will joyfully abort our fetus. And let them know. <laughs> and um, it got clipped out by Steven Crowder and that entire insane viral, you know, right wing Facebook collection, clan, whatever. <laughs> by the next morning, uh, I was, you know, someone had posted my address on Facebook. Uh, I had my inbox was full of people, either, you know, either Republicans, you know, just you know, coming after me and, and other people going, I'm a Democrat, but it's like, okay, I don't, you know, like it was a little <laughs> joke and it, and I, it, it was really kind of uh, overwhelming. And I, for a while I felt like someone's going to come kill me. You know, somebody sent me pictures of my house, um, <laughs> which was weird. And then, uh, and then after like three days, it's just sort of dissipated and went away. And then I, I guess I think that's what happens is they're just like these swarm of bees and they're directed by their, their dumb Facebook leaders to go to this person. And then there's, you know, that can only last for so long. And then they move on to another, you know, uh, thing to be enraged about. Um, but yeah, it was, it was love, pretty intense. You, yeah. I love how you talk about the, the segment about you on Hannity's show with, with Laura Trump, who you refer to as of Eric which I was trying to throw away, but I, I really, that, that got me. Um, yeah, it was funny. Lara Trump and Pam Bondi, who's the former attorney general of Florida. And just, just these three absolutely pointless people discussing me was <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. So a little surreal. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. It did make me think I, I was talking to uh, Roy Wood Jr. recently, and he is sort of trying to figure out what he's going to do now that he's not part of The Daily Show anymore. And he was like, been getting offers from uh, cable news uh, channels, whether I don't know whether it's CNN or MSNBC or both to like do something with them around the election. But he was basically saying like, but I don't know if they're actually if they actually want comedy on those channels. And it sounds like you may have discovered that they do not. <laughs> it's not necessarily the right they, venue for for that those kinds of jokes. It's it's not, and I and I hope you know I don't think that's the right. 
I think participating in that can continues it on both sides. You know, I don't think, I don't think comedy and dunking on people fixes things at all. It just keeps people where they are angry. And so even just being part of that, you know, back and forth ecosystem is, I think it's not good for a comic or a comedy in a way, you know? Uh, and Roy is so much, he's, you know, it's a bummer that the daily show wasn't going to use him. I think he would have been perfect. And um, there's something out there that's, he's bigger than that. And I, I hope he finds the right thing for him because it's, it's bigger than hosting a cable news show. Yeah, me too. It did occur to me sort of watching your special, this section of your special, and then, you know, even the, the clip of you on MSNBC that these types of hard political jokes are something that you clearly, you know, enjoy or, or can do, but it was not something that was really a part of your, uh, late night writing job at Conan because, you know, that's not what he does. So I was curious how you sort of thought about that. I mean, was it, was it, the, was it ever frustrating not to have an outlet to sort of talk about some of this political stuff in the way that, that maybe you, you can now when you were at Conan? Well, well, I've always, yeah, no, I've always kind of separated my act from, uh, from Conan, you know, I, I mean, I had to, obviously it would, and I don't like to get like, uh, you know, even when I talk about the MSNBC thing, it's because that happened to me. I wouldn't normally bring it up in that kind of partisan a way uh, because it, it it is I, I don't want to divide an audience. I've always even even in the 90s, I had some little abortion jokes that I would sneak in very quickly and then get out of very quickly. And I would, you know, do them in the South. And uh, I could see people going, ooh, and some people liking it. And then I would jump to my next topic. But I'd be like, I got it in. I never wanted to divide the audience. It's almost like sneaking veggies into pancakes for kids or something. I, that's how I always kind of like to do things and, you know, a little more subversively, but when you're appearing on a show, a political show, and they, you know, those are the topics, then, you know, your jokes are going to be much more on the nose and part of that discussion. It's not normally kind of my thing, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Conan was, you know, he's, he's silly. Like you sort of go, you know, that's, that's what we do at Conan, you know, when he was on the air. So that was fine. <laughs> you know, this, your career has been sort of split between the the stand up on one side and the writing on the other. Um, was your, your first writing job was on a uh, tough crowd with Colin Quinn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was that, that was experience like? Because yeah, that's, it seems like that was a, I was quite a, a scene on that show. And you also got to be on camera a lot. You were, seems like you were often the, uh, the token woman on the panel with all these uh, kind of aggressive guys, uh, which who I, I assume you, you got to know well, but what was, what was it like for you to start writing on that show and then start appearing on, on screen as well? Um, that was like total career changer. I was just a club comic up until then. And Colin was, um, he, you know, the show was about the seller table and the comics at the seller. And I wasn't a seller comic at the time I had just moved to New York and I was, you know, barely working the comic strip. So getting that job sort of, uh, although we didn't use this back then, uh, made me a verified <laughs> as a New York comic, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, um, it ended up, you know, helping me get passed at the seller and kind of be, be part of like the, maybe the upper ranks for a, a little bit. We writers, and there weren't many of us, we wrote the act three, which was sort of like either a game show or some sort of thing for the regulars who were, you know, discussing politics quite imperfectly and acts one and two <laughs> to do that wasn't, you know, based on uh, news stories. So that's the kind of stuff we came up with. Colin wrote his own monologues, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was unlike any other writing job I've had. Um, and what I, I, I've since learned that every writing job is very unique and some of them involve very little writing <laughs> and some of them are like very, like Conan was very writer heavy. You know, we just were cranking out jokes, uh, pitches and stuff like that all day long. And tough crowd was, was less writer heavy. It was, you know, it, it wasn't like you're submitting tons of, you know, word docs to, to call on for him to read. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I was looking back at some old clips of the show um, and it does seem like you were just, you, you were there in several instances sitting next to Patrice O'Neill, just getting like, <laughs> I know. you know, <laughs> brutalized. Trying to survive. Um, uh, just, yeah. yeah. Just treading water, hoping not to drown in the wave of Patrice O'Neill's gigantic personality, you know? Lori, as a woman, right. what do you think? I'm meant to Lori, yeah, right. as a 47-year-old woman, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I was 47. 
today. You better watch it. Her Mexican boyfriend will cut you good. Lori's a statutory boyfriend, 16. Yeah, he is. He's a 16 year old Mexican. He's not kidding. 18 tomorrow. All right, go ahead. I think also, what about these 13 and 14 year olds who are attracted to older men? That's a problem. Maybe we should be teaching 13 year old boys how to perform conolingus. What a way to get thrown into into the you know comedy world into the into TV for that to be your first job. Yeah, I think the fact that Colin hired me sort of let those guys go. All right, I guess she's kind of okay, you know, because I wasn't. I'm you know from San Francisco. I wasn't you know I didn't come up in the New York scene, so I was I was a new new entity to them. But that I mean that those they were always terrifying you know, uh, appearing on tough crowd. <laughs> I always did a ton of homework and then like, you'd have to remember your jokes and try to get them in at the right time when there was a pause, when Patrice had finished a, a sentence. So maybe he was going to take yeah. a drink of water or something. <laughs> and oh, I can finish this clause, not even the whole sentence and make it seem natural. And you know, you're saying your Iraq war joke while we're talking about the Iraq war, not while we've moved on to another topic, but you're like, Hey, I, you guys, mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. get my good Moves joke in, fast. you know? Yes, it's it's uh, it was a lot. And, um, you know, I was always terrified the entire time from Tough Crowd. You you went on to write. um, Was it Craig Ferguson before Conan? Is that right? Yeah, I was on Craig Ferguson for a little bit. And then um, I I thought I was going to get fired. But apparently I wasn't because when I quit, they like the executive producer was really mad at me. And I was like, oh, my God, I guess I I misread some signals. (laughs) Why did you why did you think you were going to get fired? I don't know. They were at that time, they had kept a lot of the Kilborn writers and they were slowly replacing everyone, I think. Um, And but I didn't realize that it just seemed like a lot of cool writers were being not being picked up again. And I was like, well, this guy's better than me. Why is you know, but I didn't realize I think Craig was like remaking his team. Um, And uh, so I had got an offer from um, Adam Carolla. (laughs) And at the time, it seemed (laughs) like it was going to be like this. I know this really is sort of edgy show. And then that turned into, you know, whatever it was, it wasn't, yeah, that was, you know, probably not the best career move, but uh, I, I didn't realize it. And, um, and then, uh, you know, it, it all ended up okay because I, I got to work for Conan for, you know, 11 years. So it's all good. So you, you did work with uh, Corolla for a little bit or? Yeah, I worked on the the show. It, it It's actually the show that replaced Tough Crowd on the Comedy Central lineup before Colbert. I think Colbert was in the works for a while and they knew it. And so they just, I'm pretty sure they had a one season idea for Corolla as well. But I don't know. I I can't, I have never been able to get into the minds of Comedy Central executives and the decisions (laughs) they made. Like, I mean, if Tough Crowd had been on the air one more year, you know, YouTube was taking off at that point and people were, people would have started clipping it out and, that would have been life changing, but they just they bailed on it, it which I didn't understand because it was so cheap. It was so cheap. They oh, barely yeah, paid sure. anything to any of us. So you know, and, and you're you're promoting the comedians you're going to give specials to. Like it's it's a no brainer. <laughs> I don't know why it's this, this is like twenty years ago, but I'm still mad that they canceled it. It's so dumb. It does feel like the kind of show that could come back. Maybe I don't know if it would be the same show, but that that type of show feels like it could be very popular right now. I think so too. I mean, it would, it, you know, Colin was a great host people. He's underrated. I I can see him reviving it himself. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it'd be hard to get somebody who wasn't, who, and he's not like the middle, but he has sort of has, uh, empathy for both sides and you can't really tell where he falls all the time. And, but it always feels like common sense. You know, and I and I think even if so, he was such a masterful host of that show. Um, I don't know if he'd ever want to do it again, but it would be hard to find somebody of his caliber to successfully do that. And you really would need to. Otherwise, it's going to fall to one side or the other. And then people are going to get mad and, and it's not what it was. Coming up, Lori reflects on 10 years writing jokes for Conan O'Brien and just how much late-night TV changed over that time. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episode with Lori Kilmartin's first late-night boss, Colin Quinn, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Lori Kilmartin. So let's talk a little bit about Conan, because as you said, you know, you spent 11 years there. Is there a story behind uh, getting hired at that show? It was at the very beginning of um, the TBS show, right? Yeah, I got hired for the TBS show. Yeah, I was between, I mean, I had worked for a little bit on the Bonnie Hunt show and um, then uh, did Last Comic Standing. And then I was just sort of floating out there with a three-year-old child, you know, debating, should I move back in with my parents in the Bay Area? Um, not knowing what was coming up. And uh, I did I did a packet for Conan. And that was my third packet. I'd done one for Late Night. And I'd done one for The Tonight Show. This was the one that worked, that got me in, in, a, in a meeting. And it felt immediately like home. These, these guys are so funny. And I still miss it, you know? I, so when I listen to his podcast, I'm like, this feels like a, a writer's meeting. <laughs> <laughs> when he's like, you know, busting a, a, um, Sona or, or Matt's balls. And, um, you know, I, I miss that. I had, you know, I, I had like great belly laughs every single day, mostly. Uh, I'd say Monday through Thursday when we were taping shows for sure. And then in the writer's room too. And I, I miss being around all that. I, I really liked it. And I, I loved the schedule I had of work with great, you know, great comedy minds, much greater than mine all day. And then do shows at night and, uh, you know, working with these people with Andy and Conan and Mike Sweeney and Matt O'Brien and uh, all the writers there, Brian Kiley, it made me so, uh, so much of a better joke writer and a better comic. And, uh, you know, I, I cherish it and I miss it. I definitely, I think the show would have gone on a few more years if we hadn't spent, you know, a year on Zoom, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everything had changed yeah. for late night. It really, yeah, it really did. I mean, um, you spent, you know, so many years writing jokes for Conan, for monologue jokes, and then also, you know, performing stand up at night, as you said. Was that ever, what was that like for you to kind of like write in his voice? but also be working on your own material at the same time. Um, Cause it always seems like it's a, it's a very odd job and challenge to write jokes for someone else. I mean, once I got his voice in my head, it just existed in a separate place. I think if I had been writing for a female host who talked about uh, the same stuff that I talked, you know, like a female mother host that would have crossed, that would have been like, I don't want to give this one to her. <laughs> oh yeah. But, yeah. You, know, you want to hold on to nothing, things for yourself. Yeah. Nothing from my personal life ever, ever made, you know, connected with Conan whatsoever. Did it get harder over the years because of social media and because of the sort of the number of other late night shows out there and and all that? I think so. It's weird. I don't don't know what the audience is becoming for late night because it feels like a lot of it's seen the next day in clips on, not on the network, you know, not on the- For sure, yeah. The the original linear broadcasts and stuff. So- and it it seems like it's getting very segregated, you know, you know, certain a demographic likes one show, a certain demographic likes another. So it, it, it's changing so much. I, um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested to see what, what's going to happen with late night as we go. I mean, I, I love the idea of people summing up the day every single day with jokes. I love it. I love a monologue. I, I could do without the interviews, you know, but maybe other people love the celebrity <laughs> interviews. I love the comedy about the day, that day. And, uh, but at the same time, you were sort of saying that you don't, you don't think that the sort of, uh, calling out the other side, the other political side has maybe much of an effect. Do you think that some of the shows have gotten too much into 
you know, pure politics or do you enjoy that stuff uh, as a viewer? I, I enjoy a joke that makes me laugh, not one that makes me cheer. <laughs> it's an important distinction. It's hard. It's really hard to, you know, you get addicted to a noise, any noise. And um, it's really hard to, it's hard to write a joke that gets a good laugh. You know, you can, and, and that's why a lot of them just get a kind of a laugh and a more like, yeah, ultimately those aren't that satisfying. You know, they're not a laugh. I mean, a laugh is involuntary and it makes you feel giggly and good all inside. <laughs> Those are hard to manufacture. I think, and in your special, your comedy, a lot of the laughs almost seem like people laughing um, in spite of themselves. Against or, their will. Or laughing even though, <laughs> yeah, against their will or, or they're not sure that they should be laughing, but they are. Is that the kind of, it seems like you, you gravitate towards those a lot, at least in this, uh, in your you know current work. Yeah, that's what I like. Yeah. I, I like I like um, I like folded arms slowly unfolding, and then just going all right. <laughs> yeah, you got all me. right. I'll laugh. Yeah, you, yeah, you got me. Ten years old is way too young for the Diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> A lot of shit goes down in that book. Like at about page ten, she gets her period, and my son goes, "What's a period?" And I thought, "Oh well, this is a good time to learn." So I said, well, when girls are Anne's age, they begin to menstruate. And that means once a month, blood flows uncontrollably out of their vaginas. <laughs> to watch a 10-year-old boy hear about it for the very first time. <laughs> My kid couldn't even talk. One hand right to the balls because they thought they would start bleeding. And the other hand went up to block more words from me. And this is like a minute-long defensive reaction. And then he calms down, and I pick up the book again, and he goes, wow, I hope no more bad things happen to Anne Frank. You worked in late night, um, you know, as sort of a day job for so long, and now, you know, after Conan um, went away, are there other, other things that that has freed you up to, to pursue that you, that you were sort of excited about now that you maybe have uh, some more time on your hands than you did when you were working on monologue jokes uh, every day? I guess, um, I mean, I, I really do miss that job and I would love to have it again. I, I don't think of other writing as, you know, higher level. Like it's really hard to do. So I like it. And, and especially if you're writing for somebody who's really funny and who you like a lot, it's, it's fun. The best part is I've got to spend a lot more time with my son. And that, that actually happened during the, during lockdown, which happened with a lot of us where, and we couldn't go out at night and do shows, uh, did a lot of zoom shows in the room, in my bedroom. But I, I spent a lot of time with my son, uh, that I hadn't spent with him before, you know? Uh, and that was great. And I, and it's still great. You know, we still spend a lot of time together and I can pick him up from school. He's 17, but he doesn't have a driver's license yet. You know, stuff that I never was like, also, I was very anti-mother and anything surrounding motherhood. And when I became a mother, I'm like, I'm not going to do it like that. I'm going to work. And I mean, I had to because I was a single mom. But um, but uh, the uh, you know the pleasure and just picking up my son from school and hearing his little details, I'm like, ah, oh, shoot, I missed this a lot. You know, I had had someone else. I hired someone to pick him up when I was working at Conan. I had to. Um, and I missed out, out, out on that stuff, you know, but I, I'm getting it now. So I, I love that. Um, uh, as a stand up now, I'm just a stand up now. And the uh, amount of social media that I have to participate in is depressing. Um, yeah, you feel like it's you have not to. what I like to do. Yeah, you, you absolutely have to people bookers, people are booking based on your follower count now and not any credits you have or anything like that. I mean, uh, which, which is kind I mean, in one way it's cool because the, the, the ladder to success as a comic before was, you know, grueling and a lot of people couldn't do it because they had families or something. Right. So people can go around, which that is really cool. But if you're not a person who likes that, I, I, you know, I'm grudgingly posting videos. I don't, I don't like posting videos. I like Twitter because I, I like writing, but I'm not a video lady. I spend way too much time looking at my face and going, oh, you know, and redoing things. And um, it's time consuming and not fun, but it, it, you have to do it now. So I guess that's what I'm, you know, becoming 
and uh, I'm working on other writing stuff. Um, I'm working on a, a pilot and uh, I just got like some really gruesome notes <laughs> from my, from Chloe Radcliffe, who's a great writer. And I was like, oh, she's right. I got to, so my act three is like a mess. So I got to redo that and whatever. It's, I, so yeah, I have other things I'm working on. None of it's paid and all of it's in the hopes that it will help me earn money later on down the line. I'll, you know, every, every cent I got paid for the special has been spent in promo someone redoing my website, all all that kind of stuff you do to get people to watch it. And I'm hoping they watch it. So they'll want to come see me in person. That's basically my life now is to try to lure you, uh, the listener into a comedy club when I'm in your town. I just miss writing jokes for somebody and then doing spots at <laughs> night. It was much simpler. Yeah, and I simpler didn't life. have to worry about all that stuff. Yeah. Cause I had money coming in from my, uh, my joke writing day job was pretty awesome. Um, so now what I want to do is our, our segment called the first laugh. So I'm going to ask you some, some questions um, with the rest of our time here, uh, starting with the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. Uh, something that you, that comes to mind. Ooh, I'm going to guess it, it's, I, I mean, I may be misremembering this because I've seen it so many times since, but it's the Carol Burnett sketch with, when she comes down with the curtain rod, when she's doing um, Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, I remember watching that with my mom and I, I don't think I got it because I didn't know the movie. Yeah, you didn't get the <laughs> but, reference, but yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, a laugh's a laugh as far as they're concerned, right? And, and my mom was cry laughing and I was laughing. That's the thing I, I remember most about a laugh like that, for sure was mostly laughing with my mom at Carol Burnett. That's, those are the good times <laughs> before everyone got so splintered. Yeah. Do you remember the, the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? Now, this was fourth grade. Um, I was, uh, there was a, a group of cool girls and one of them was named Jackie Snyder. She was mean to me. And so were her little satellite girls, Vicky and Shelby. And, uh, we had to write like a story, you know, uh, our, our, um, our teacher's name, Mr. Wright. <laughs> and, um, and I, I stood up and I read my story, something about a turtle and I can't find, he kept it because it was really good and it was funny. And I was reading it and Jackie laughed, Jackie Snyder laughed. And I remember going, I got you. And then, then her meanness, she's continued to be mean to me. I wasn't like accepted in the group, but I, I remember feeling a victory. And I didn't, I didn't go, Oh, now I'm going to be a comedian. I was just was like, ah, so that same, you so that same, you got me feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, what about the, the very first time you performed stand up? Uh, where were you? How did it go? You know, what, what memories come to mind when you think about it? Okay. So I, I took a comedy class, uh, before I did stand up with this guy named John Cantu, who was a, porn star slash stand-up slash bartender working out of the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. So, and I, despite that he was a porn star, I never had a bad interaction with him or anything creepy. Um, He was also like Native American and maybe one of some ungodly amount of children, like in the teens. His life was insane and someone should look into it. Uh, He has since died, but he taught stand-up at the Holy City Zoo And uh, like he started with Robin and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, and I took his class and then I did a set at this club called Fubars in Concord, California. And uh, excuse me, in Pleasant Hill at the time it moved. And um, I was, telemarketing was my day job. And we were setting appointments for a management consultant who eventually went bankrupt as they, they're pointless, never, never use them. That's mostly what I learned. But we would set appointments for people, business owners to listen to one of our, you know, a-hole sales guys try to take money from them. They all came. I, all I did was I, I had a, um, a brochure that my mom had gotten from, uh, Ernest Borgnine's wife was named Tova Felcha and she had a makeup line. And so, uh, I just read the description of her makeup with a bunch of like dick joke observations and crushed, crushed. Then the next week, I went back to that same open mic. It was Tuesday night. I, my friends weren't there and did exactly the same thing. And I bombed. And then I was like, what? 
wait. (laughs) Like I couldn't understand what had happened. And then I kind of stopped doing comedy for a year. I was so freaked out. And I, then I took another comedy class from this other guy who was like a me tooer. And, um, but you know, I had been raised to accept that (laughs) and, um, get used to it, whatever. And, um, uh, and then I started doing comedy a year later and by then I figured out a few more things and had some, you know, kept, just kept going from then. So, uh, that's, that was how I started. (laughs) Um, what did it, what did it teach you the sort of doing the same bit and doing really well the first time and bombing the second time? Like, what, what did you take away from that besides not wanting to ever do it again? I, I just, I was so mystified how the response could be so different, you know? And I didn't know now. I basically had done a bringer show. I brought my friends. I didn't realize that, you know? And um, I, I guess I just wanted to have more material. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you I can't more count than on brochure. Yeah. Tova Felch's makeup brochure. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I needed more material and, and a path, some kind of path. The path I was put on, this guy was obsessed with everyone being clean and leaving the mic in the stand. Now, that, that took like two years to undo, you know, after I stopped working with him um, and you know, but it just takes a while to find, it takes so long to find your voice and figure out what kind of comic you are that when you're younger, you need to try a bunch of stuff and see, you know, the audience like tells you what kind of comic you are by laughing at, at certain stuff. And they'll tell you if you're, are you, are you, do you do act outs? Are you deadpan? All that kind of stuff. They'll, they, what they respond to is who you are. You know, they what kind did, of what create did, you. What did they tell you? What, what kind of comic are you? Oh God, I don't even know. I still, I'm still trying to figure it out, you know? <laughs> Uh, I do know if I say something dark and I smile afterwards, it really helps. And I kind of forget that sometimes. And, and I uh, annoy, it's, it's almost trip. annoying. Like, ugh, do I have to show you my teeth? <laughs> That's what it feels like. All right, here's my teeth. All right. You feel better? Good. Let me, can I tell the That's next so joke? That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, once you started writing material and, and, you know, sort of getting better, was there a joke a first joke that you wrote that you felt really good about that you, you know, sort of knew could always work or always get a laugh. Um, you know, just a, a very early joke that, that really worked. Let's see. An early one was like, uh, I, I, uh, I like, I crashed into a parked car, but don't worry. I left a note on the windshield that said, oops, <laughs> that one, <laughs> that one worked pretty well. <laughs> That's good. I did work with this guy named Chuck Montgomery and we did some one nighters, in the Northwest in Montana. And he told me, he goes, you got to have a joke with your name in it. So people remember your name. And he had a joke with his name, which is why I remember Chuck Montgomery is he had a joke about Montgomery, Alabama and people asking him, is he from Montgomery or something? I don't even know what the premise. I think the premise of the joke is pretty weak, but it's like, it worked. I know your name. So then I, the joke I came up with was, uh, my name is Lori Kilmartin. It means it's Irish for Church of St. Martin. And it also means if I ever marry Charlie Sheen, my name will be Lori Kilmartin Sheen. <laughs> and um, that worked pretty well. You know, I was, you know, uh, I, I, they're both alive, which I still can't believe. I thought we'd lose Charlie first. Yeah. Yeah. So you can keep telling that joke, at least for now. It might, yeah, at a certain point might not be. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I, I'd be have to stretch in pretty hard to tell that joke at this point. Like, <laughs> like it's gotta yeah, be like a really four hour show. The bottom of the barrel. Yeah. 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 Um, what about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes? Um, do you have a story about meeting someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world? Well, you know, I, I met Carol Burnett when she was a guest on Conan and I, I hardly ever asked to meet people like every once in a while they, they would hang out in the green room. Like, you know, uh, uh, Brian Kiley and I were hanging out with Dick Van Dyke, you know, we're just standing next to him talking a little bit. That was really cool. Uh, but Carol Burnett, I, I, I said to the segment producer, I'm like, I never ask. And, and here's segment producers. That's all they hear from people. I never ask, but <laughs> can I meet your guests today? And, uh, and so I, I met Carol Burnett and as soon as I started talking to her, I started crying and I think this happens to her all the time. I think a whole generation of women watched Carol Burnett with their mothers. If you talk to female comics, my age, that's all of us. And she means so much to us. 
So I started crying. <laughs> and so there's a picture, like the producer took a picture and I've got like mascara just all over my face. And Carol Burnett's That's very, very special, politely though. smiling. She's she's very nice and uh, you know, that that when when um when Quinta Brunson mentioned she was like Carol Burnett, I'm like, yeah. I mean, her her Quinta's like what, thirty five or something? And still yeah, her or, influence or, or is, less, yeah. is huge. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. So that's, yeah, that's very cool. Um, is there something in your career that you said no to that you now sometimes kind of wish you had said yes to? I guess um, I, I sometimes wish I had moved to LA when all my friends did. I stayed in San Francisco because I, li- I was living with my parents rent free. So I didn't have to worry about that. That was cool. And I was just like a road feature. And I really loved being on the road. And I loved try driving to all these places and uh, making people that weren't anything like me laugh, you know? So that was cool. I loved it. And I felt like that, that was something I really needed. And I, and I know a lot of my friends from my, my cohort, you know, that we all started together, didn't like that. (laughs) And, um, they sort of, a bunch of them moved to LA and sort of formed or became part of the like early alt comedy scene, did a lot of writing and became, became enmeshed in all that. And I missed out on it. Um, I mean, I did eventually move to New York and became enmeshed in tough crowd and that scene. So it was okay. But sometimes I, I wonder, did I, I miss out on like some foundational career years because I, I stayed, um, in San Francisco and just worked the road because I, I felt like I needed it. And I was afraid of LA and I didn't want to be, you know, at that, plus at that time in San Francisco, it was like, LA comic. <laughs> it was, you know, it was really frowned upon. So, yeah, very different now. Yeah, I, I do wish, you know, I, I wonder about that, but you know, maybe there's a is an alternate universe Laurie Kilmartin that did move to LA in nineteen ninety two with, you know, Margaret Cho <laughs> and Greg Barrett and all those guys and something cool happened. I don't know. Is there something on the flip side that you said yes to that you now sometimes wish you had said no to? Um I mean you know, stand up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, this entire uh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because I'm never going to want to quit. It's always going to be a thing like when it gets dark out and I don't have a set, I start, you know, getting nervous. And, and after a couple of days, if I miss a couple of nights, I, I'm uncomfortable with in my own skin. And how's it going to play out when I'm 85 and, you know, in a nursing home? <laughs> yeah, you better um, hope they have a good open mic. <laughs> yeah. So uh, sometimes I, I, or I frequently wonder if I hadn't gone down this path, but I did. I'm here. I'm a lifer. Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Oh yeah, when I was, I was doing. I, I'm not really a. Co- I was never a college act, you know. But everyone, you know, some people, you know, I, I got some college work after I did a NACA showcase. That, that's this huge thing that comedians do. And you have to be super clean and all, all the things I wasn't. But somehow I snuck through. I, I did a I did a show at TCU. And this is like in ni- the mid 90s. So, you you know, you weren't Googling things. You know, I was like Texas or whatever. So I show up and. And I always think like college students are more progressive than me, right? So I'm like, I can do abortion jokes here. These are college kids. They have abortions all day long. And I didn't even realize until I was on stage that the C stood for Christians, Texas Christian University. Not So not only was that not good, but it was an outdoor show at night. So there, all the elements were wrong. And um, after the show... I had rented a car. So I, I, um, and I was a, you know, like many people have eating problems and you got to do something after a bad set. So I went to a grocery store and I got like ho-hos or something. <laughs> and, um, someone in line had been at the show and, uh, I, I, for, I forget the exact interaction, but it, and I think that they had, were a part in booking me on the show and I perhaps had, um, cost them their, job at the college or something. <laughs> uh, that's what I remember. Um, and, uh, that was a bad feeling. And, you know, I look back and I hope she's still unemployed because she was a coward. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got back from Texas. I was there this weekend and they're still the same. 
I was yeah, in, it they was still, weird. I they was, still don't like your abortion jokes? Well, no. And, and, oh, and la- this last weekend, I was in Paris, Texas, and it's a small town, and I had two shows, and the crowd stayed for the second show. And I didn't real. I found out on stage, I'm like, guys. Uh, wh- what are you doing? I'm telling the same stuff. <laughs> so I did it, but then I told some other stuff that I hadn't done, including the MSNBC material. And I'm like, look, it's your fault for staying. I wasn't going to do this stuff in Texas. All right. Yeah. But it's your fault. I have no so. choice. That's so funny. Um, well, Lori, thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, you've just had a, just a, an incredible career. And I think, as I said, the special is, is so great. Um, so, yeah, it's been really fun talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Lori Kilmartin. Her incredibly funny and very dark stand up special, Sis Woke Grief Slut is available to rent or buy on Apple, Amazon, and most of the other video-on-demand platforms. We'll put a link in the description for this episode as well. Lori is also pretty much always on tour, and you can get tickets to see her live at lauriekilmartin.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.